Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? How's your temperature? Feeling good? I feel like we've done all right this morning. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, this gym has no AC, and there have been much hotter Sunday mornings than this. But this is pretty good. Um, I'm Scott. I'm the pastor here, and uh, it's a joy to be here this morning. Some of you are visiting. Some of you I know well. Wherever you're at in your faith and in your journey, we're so thrilled you're here. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about something that I think we all have questions about or think about or worry about or whatever, and that is the inclusivity and exclusivity of Christianity. Um, I know this is a thing because I've talked to many of you about this, and my hunch is even if I haven't talked to you, you think about it. So how is Christianity inclusive? What does Jesus have to do with inclusivity? What's unique about Christianity? What's exclusive about it? If you've been with us, we've been in the book of Acts, this one that Margaret read from, the really long story about Cornelius. And in that story, there's three different conversion stories that we've studied. So first was the Ethiopian eunuch, then it was the Apostle Paul, and now it's this guy, Cornelius. And after studying them all together, I think it truly gives us a teachable moment, which we want to lean into today, because I think it gives us a picture of how the gospel, as it spreads to so many different people, and I'll give background on some of these other folks, shows us radical inclusivity and radical exclusivity all at the same time. And if that sounds like a complete paradox, hang in there with me and we'll get there. So if you have questions about this, if you're new and you're asking questions, I hope this is helpful. If you're a Christian and you've been thinking about this, I hope that the Bible is very, very crystallizing for you this morning because this is really powerful stuff. So we're going to dig into Cornelius' story first. Uh, We're going to spend a good amount of time walking through it and trying to just kind of summarize it so we can get our hands in like what's happening in this crazy story with sheets and animals and Roman soldiers and all kinds of stuff. And then I want to ask three questions. How is the gospel inclusive? Number two, how is the gospel exclusive? And number three, how does the church participate in that inclusivity and exclusivity? Sound good? Okay. We begin by diving into the drama of Cornelius' conversion. And I'm going to try to just kind of walk through, walk through it with me together. We're going to try to summarize what's going on. So the important background of this story is the relationship between Jew and Gentile. You might know this, but the Bible teaches that God created all people for himself, like I prayed this morning, of one blood. But when the world fell into sin, God chose the specific people of Israel to bless and dwell among so that through them he could bless the whole world. And in order to do that, he set Israel apart. That's where we get our word holy. He called them to be a a set-apart people. And he commanded them to be distinct from the world. Now, God was super intentional, and you can read all this all over the Old Testament, that Israel was not to think this was favoritism, okay? Israel was not to think we're better than everybody else, all the other nations. The Jewish word for that is Gentile, which is what I am. And that Israelites were to love the foreigner and the sojourner. Yet even so, over time, that distinction turned into prejudice, I'm not pointing the finger at Jews here because we all do this, right? Do Americans do this? Give me a head nod. Yes, we do. So this is not a Jewish sin. It's a human sin manifested in a Jewish context. We good? 
Yet even so, it was there. So Gentiles referred to, or sorry, Jewish people referred to Gentiles as dogs. Uh, they would not go into their house, which plays a big part in this story. Uh, Jewish men would get up and pray and thank God that he didn't make them a Gentile. So it's there. That's the background. With that in mind, we get to this crazy, crazy story, okay? And I think uh, it has three scenes in it. So think of this like a really good play or a really good film. Uh, there's a different context for each one, and I'll walk, I'll walk through us with it. So if you want to, you can open up to your, your bulletin uh, to that reading, because we're going to walk through the whole thing. I'm going to fly over it, but we're going to do it. What page is it on? It's in page seven of your bulletin. Okay, the first scene focuses in on Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion in Caesarea. In other words, he's a full Gentile Roman military man. So if it helps you, he is Russell Crowe in Gladiator, okay? He has the Roman leather skirt thing. He's got the, the red plumes. Like, this is a Navy SEAL, okay? So don't get, like, Bible world out. This is a true Roman warrior, and he's pretty high up, okay? But we also learn that this guy's pretty pious. He's like a civil servant. He's drawn to the Jewish faith. He's drawn to the one God of Israel. He prays a lot. He gives away his money to the poor. So he's like the best type of military man. And one day, an angel appears to him. That could be the whole sermon right there. In the book of Luke, it's the same author. Who, does, who do angels appear to? Mary, the mother of God, right? Think of all the other people that an angel shows up to. Even that is a huge deal. This Romans, you need to go find a guy named Peter who's in a town called Joppa, which to me has always sounded like a Star Wars planet. Anybody else? Joppa? That's all he gets. He says, I've seen your almsgiving and your prayers. Go and find this guy named Peter. And that's it. Can you imagine what you'd think? Random name, random city. Here, you need to go find this person. He grabs three Gentile buddies, maybe some soldiers or something, and he sends them off. Scene one comes to a cut. Okay? Now, verses 9 to 23, scene 2. The camera pans to Peter, who's hanging out in Joppa. Okay? Um, and the tension's building, because as this scene is happening, the three guys are on their way to come get him. Okay? And this, the second scene begins when Peter is settling into his prayers, and he's starting to get hungry, which I think is hilarious. If you're a religious person, and you ever tried to fast or pray? Have you ever, in the middle of your prayers, thought, like, what am I going to eat? tomorrow morning for breakfast after this is done, or like, man, I want Chipotle. Uh, that's literally what the Bible says, okay? Read with me in verse 10. We're going to read this part. Verse 10, and he became hungry. Sweet Peter. He's a human, okay? Don't blame him. And he wanted something to eat. So while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I had a buddy of mine, who, his name was Peter, and he used to say that this was his life verse. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is bizarre, um, and I'm not going to go into it deep, but here's the point of the vision, which is what matters for us this morning. Peter is hearing God tell him to eat animals that were previously unclean for Jews to eat. There were divisions between food in the Old Testament, just like there were between Jew and Gentile. And God was using this food vision as a metaphor for Peter to say, cross that division, cross that boundary. There's no longer a division where there used to be. Does that make sense? 
Peter recoils at it in verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. He's like, oh my gosh, no, there's no way. And then again, the voice reiterates it a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. At this point, verse 17 says, Peter is inwardly perplexed, which is 100% an understatement. Um, He had been steeped in thousands of years of tradition and even biblical divisions of that. He'd also been steeped in thousands of years of prejudice and probably didn't like what he was hearing. So he's shocked. Cornelius is freaking out. So is Peter, okay? The dramatic timing of this is amazing because right as that finishes, the doorbell rings and it's the three guys from Cornelius, Russell Crowe, the centurion, who are there to get him. And that's what it ends. They tell them they're there. The Holy Spirit whispers to Peter, go with them. Don't worry about their Gentiles. Go with them. Just trust me. Be obedient. And Peter says yes. And that is the end of the second scene. So we finish with Peter, or sorry, Cornelius. You can imagine him like pacing around his room waiting because an angel's told him he needs to hear something from this one guy. And then Peter is walking to Caesarea, probably not even quite knowing what he's supposed to say and what's going to happen yet. Just as an aside, isn't it amazing how all three of these conversion stories, if you've tracked with us, at some point have Jesus calling a Christian to just be faithful and go do something crazy? Think about Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's asked to just go south on a road and just interrupts his life and he just goes. What's he thinking as he's walking? Ananias is asked to go pray for Paul, the crazy persecutor of the church. And then here we have Peter walking. I'm just amazed that every single one, there's a time where God disrupts a Christian's life and says, I want you to completely go out on a limb. Just as a little meditative moment, I'm not sure that my schedule and my ears would even be able to hear God if he called me to do something like that. I think we can open ourselves a lot more to the winds of where the Spirit is blowing for the sake of others. Amen? What a cool picture. Scene three is when they come together. Verse 24. The posse, which is now Jew and Gentile, because it's Peter and his buddies and then these three Gentile guys, show up Cornelius' house and they enter it, which is a big deal. And then he sees Cornelius, who has gathered all his friends and family together to listen. It is, that scene should be really moving to you. Cornelius and all his family, he's gathered everyone to listen to what Peter might have to say. And it's kind of funny, Peter begins by saying, okay, this is crazy, why did you send for me? And then he says back, hey man, an angel visited me, and I'm supposed to hear what you have to say. I have no idea what you're going to say. And then I think there's this silence as Peter is thinking about the vision he just received. He's thinking about Jesus' words, because Jesus said really similar things to the vision. He's thinking about the Torah, probably. The Holy Spirit is bringing clarity into his mind about his cultural prejudice, about the gospel. And then I think the penny drops for him. And he says in verse 34, this is a big, big, big verse. So we're going to read this together. Or you don't have to read it with me. I'll read it. Unless you want. That God shows no partiality. Amen? But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And 
then he goes on to do what he's known he's been called there to do, which is preach the news. His job is to tell Cornelius what happened, just like he told all the Jews what happened in Jerusalem. He starts with John the Baptist. He talks about Jesus being anointed with the Spirit as baptism. He talks about his ministry and his healing and his teaching. He talks about his death for our sins, his resurrection, his appearance to many, and the fact that he will come back to judge the living and the dead. What does that sound like? Sounds like the creed, right? That's basically what he tells him. Here's what happened. He told him the news. And then he finishes again in verse 43 by saying, to him all the prophets, talking about Jesus, bear witness that everyone who believes, he's emphasizing it now, I get it, God is fulfilling what he always said he would do, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You guys still with me? We're almost done. What happens next confirms everything and completes the third scene. Read with me in verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that means the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed. They're like, what is happening? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. What does that sound like? Pentecost. Remember when the Spirit fell on a group of people? And they all started speaking in different tongues and extolling God. It's a Gentile Pentecost. Boom. What a party. Then Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just like us? What does that sound like? It's a deep cut. That's what the eunuch asks. You guys remember? Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? Can I hop in the water too? They ask the same thing. So the news of Jesus is proclaimed, the spirit moves, and the story ends with a splash, as all the best stories do, the splash of baptism. As with the different Jews at Pentecost, so with the Samaritans, with the eunuch, with Paul, so with Cornelius and his family. If you are not Jewish, this is a day you should celebrate. This is your Independence Day when you were grafted in to the root of Jesse by sheer audacious grace. Amen? I'm a Gentile. This, this story moves me, that God has invited me, even me, to be a part of his family. Okay, thanks for tracking with me. It's a long story, but I hope that makes sense a little bit more what's going on. Three questions, which I hope are really helpful to you this morning. How is the gospel inclusive? How is it exclusive? How does the church participate in that? First, how is the gospel inclusive? The gospel is utterly inclusive in its invitation. Again, verse 34, the one we read, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes and does what is right and fears him is acceptable. Paul is like, he can't find any other pronouns or like words to say to show just how vast God's invitation goes. Do you guys see that? And I'm 100% convinced that the author, Luke, is doing the same thing by putting these three stories that we've been studying together. He's proving through history that Peter isn't blowing smoke. Jesus did really come for everyone. So think about our three conversion stories. And again, if you haven't been here the past couple weeks, totally okay. There were the eunuch, Paul, and then Cornelius today. The Ethiopian eunuch is a really rich African politician. Paul is this super zealous, deeply religious philosopher. 
And then this guy is a professional Roman warrior. If you could grab three people who are utterly distinct, I would pick those three guys. Not to mention throwing Peter in the mix, who's a blue-collar fisherman. Those are different people. And by picking those three, I think the author of the book of Acts in the Bible is showing nobody's outside of the circle. God moves toward each as well. We've seen that, right? God cares. He sees these people. He comes after them, which means that not only is everyone invited, God comes after everyone, which is even better news. So we've talked about this before. I was joking about this in our prayer circle this morning. We're going to belabor this point because Acts is belaboring this point. There is no possible way, wherever you're at this morning in these chairs, that you are outside of the circle. Jesus came specifically for you and for me. The gospel is not just for some type of cultural people, people with a certain skin color, of a certain political affiliation. I hope you can see that. It is for everyone. Amen? And all God's people affirm that. We've talked about it before, but that is right in your face in this. Christianity is radically inclusive. But the gospel is also completely inclusive in what it calls everyone to. And this is really important, and I think you see this the same here as well. Everyone's invited, and everyone is called to walk the same road of discipleship with Jesus. The gospel requires all to humble themselves, to repent of their sins, and, but only some people had to change. The gospel would not be inclusive if it called everyone, but only some people had to change, right? And it's really this that levels the playing field and I think makes it so inclusive. Think about our three stories, the eunuch, Paul, and Cornelius. If you ask me, if those people got converted, who are the people that like would just have the easy end? Like this is obviously for them, so it's not gonna be a big deal. I would say out of those people, Paul would be the one that I would think, well, I mean, he's like already revolves around the Old Testament and the Bible. Like it's not gonna be that big of a deal for him to believe Jesus is the Messiah. The Roman and the eunuch, they got some changing to do. They're way far out. But I think Paul actually has the hardest road to walk from being a religious person. I think we see that in the Gospels too. So do you see how the eunuch and Paul and Cornelius all have the exact same road to walk? Do you guys see that? I think that's a really important point. They all have to be baptized. They all have to die to themselves. They all have to submit to the church, which was especially a hard thing for Paul to do. Now, that doesn't mean that their different stories were blurred or that they lost their distinction. God doesn't turn all colors into gray, but they all had to come and walk the same road, which I think is really beautiful. Let me see if I can give you a modern metaphor, which is ridiculous, and I've used this before. Imagine that a guy rolls up to church in a huge gas-guzzling pickup listening to Leonard Skinner, you know, with like a don't tread on me bumper sticker, okay? And next to him comes a Tesla with a Greenpeace sticker on the back playing Taylor Swift's You Need to Calm Down, okay? <laughs> and they park right next to each other. What is so radical about the gospel, and if your experience has been different from this, that's not reflective of Christianity. That means that the church was messing up. What is radical about the gospel is both of those folks walk into church and are greeted. <gasps> you're here. This is for you. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Jesus 
is just for you. But that's not where it ends. Because if it was, then they would just come into church and get mad at each other, right? Which is what happens in the world. No, in church, both of them come under Jesus' authority and word, and they're changed. They're called to the waters of baptism where they die to themselves and are raised to new life. And when both of those people, whom God loves, come out of the water, they stand shoulder to shoulder. Does that make sense? You can't have the first inclusion without the second one. Those come together. So how is it exclusive? How is the gospel exclusive? The gospel includes all, but it is exclusively about Jesus. Peter's sermon in verses 34 to 43 when he talks, Jason preached like a month ago and he used this analogy, is a inclusive, exclusive, inclusive sandwich, okay? He's got two inclusivity buns. He opens up by talking about how this is for everybody. And then he gets really specific and he talks about Jesus. And then he pans out and it finishes with saying, and it's for everybody. So look at the portion of this in the meat, in the heart of it in verse 42. You guys there? And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify what? What's the message? This is really interesting. That, starting back in verse 42, he is the one appointed by God, Jesus, to be the judge of the living and the dead. Peter is saying his job is to let people know that it is only Jesus, only him, who at the end of all of our lives, we will stand before in judgment. He's given that power to rule with equity over the world, like our psalm says. But here's why you don't have to fear that. Here's why it's still good news. Look at verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In other words, just like you will only stand before Jesus in judgment, you can only find that new life and joy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that's because he's the only one who is God incarnate, who died and rose again for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God. Peter says in another sermon in Acts that there is salvation in no other name. It always comes back to Jesus' name. So this passage teaches us that God is impartial to nations and stories and people, but he is not impartial to worship and glory and authority. That's all about Jesus. I hope you can see that at the heart of what Peter has to say to Cornelius. It's for everybody, and it's all about Jesus. Jesus says one time in John, I am the door. He who comes, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says more famously elsewhere, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So it's the same for us. The gospel is radical in its inclusivity, and it is radical in its exclusivity. Final question. And for this, I want to talk to some of you who are, would call yourself Christians. Uh, I think this is a challenge for us. How is the church called to participate in this inclusivity and exclusivity? Put simply, we invite and welcome everyone with radical, right, to the one exclusive door of Jesus. Right? Amen? 
What's interesting is Jesus actually gives us an image for this, and that is the keys of the kingdom. Um, Turn with me to your gospel reading real quick. Last thing, we're going to look at this gospel reading. Should be on page 9, 10, 9, page 9. So this is right after Peter's confession, which is when he realizes that it's all about Jesus. And he says, oh my gosh, you're the Christ. And then here's, I'm going to start in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I must confess, I'm not sure if I ever properly understood what in the world the keys of the kingdom are. If you visit really beautiful cathedrals throughout Europe, you'll notice keys all over the place, because that's been an iconic symbol of the church. Are keys for exclusivity or inclusivity? Could be either, right? It could lock a door or you could unlock a door. Do keys keep people out of the church? But after you live in Acts for a while, I think it gets really clear. Keys are for opening. They are for opening. In the Bible, images of sin and evil are always bound to prisons and chains and slavery They bind us, and the gospel comes with images of broken chains and salvation and freedom, right? In Matthew 16, verse 18, what is locked? You can talk back to me. What's locked? The gates of hell are locked, right? And what are gates for? Keeping people in, keeping people out. What does Jesus say? The gates of hell will not prevail against what? The church. And then he hands his disciples the keys to unlock the gates of hell. Isn't that amazing? He's empowered his people through his Holy Spirit to unbind people in the name of Jesus from slavery to evil, to tragedy, to sin, to shame. The enemy is not attacking, he is under siege. And Jesus gives his people the keys. That is the real story of Acts. You're watching people use these keys and just freeing people to find life in Jesus' name everywhere. The keys are the gospel, I think you see. The exclusive news of Jesus, and we see people being liberated all over Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and everywhere. Jesus does it in his ministry. Uh, Remember the Gerasene demoniac and Randy's amazing picture of the madman with the chains around his head? Jesus does it first, and then he empowers his people to do the same. Think about it. The angel doesn't preach to Cornelius. Isn't that interesting? He could have. That would maybe have been easier for Jesus to do. I'm just going to, like, unleash angels all over the world to tell people that Jesus has died and rose again and do this. People respond more readily to angels than they do to other people, I think it's fair to say. What does he do? He just says, you need to go listen to Peter. And then he tells Peter, you tell him, because Peter had the keys. It's amazing. The gospel has always gone forward like that. That's the church's job is to unlock, and it still is today. Um, Catherine Ruck is a leader in our church network, and she told me this story one time about a missionary who felt called to a place in the world that uh, was persecuting Christianity quite a bit. 
So this guy moves into this place, and one day the doorbell rings, and he comes up to the doorbell and opens up the door and was shot and killed by a guy who had found he had moved there to preach about Jesus. And he had a wife and family, and it was really, really tragic. And then another missionary felt called by the Holy Spirit to go back into the same place and moved into the same house. And one day the doorbell rang, and he got up and unlocked it, and his head was bagged, and he was thrown in a van and driven for hours until they got to this random spot. They hauled him out into this room and took the bag off of his head, and he was before like hundreds of men. And then the leader of them said, we've all had dreams that we have blood on our hands, and we were told that you were the one to tell us how to get it off. And guess what the guy did? He told him about the gospel. Same thing Peter told Cornelius. I know how to do that. Same compassion and empathy that probably it took Ananias to lay hands on Paul and pray for him as his brother after he'd persecuted his brethren. You see how inclusive and loving that is? And he told him about Jesus. Jesus is the one. Not me. Jesus can take the blood off your hands. That's a crazy story, but the essence is the same for us. Keys of the kingdom are for opening. Amen? As a parting shot, with this great privilege that we have, there will always be two temptations. To be exclusive where Jesus is inclusive and to be inclusive where Jesus is exclusive. Does that make sense? To be exclusive where he's inclusive, to be inclusive where he's exclusive. Jesus has very, very harsh words for people who do not open up the church and the kingdom to other people and let any cultural prejudice or anything get in. Listen to this. He says to religious guys one time, woe to you for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You're not using it. You didn't enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Do you see how that relates? That'd be like Peter saying, I'm not going into Cornelius' house. That dude's a Roman warrior. I hate Romans. Uh, one of my favorite songwriters I listened to growing up is a guy named Josh Ritter. He's not a Christian, and he has a lot of issues with Christianity, actually. But I still love his angels fly around in there, but we can't see him. And I remember listening to that when I was in high school and thinking, that is an indictment on the church. Yeah. It is never an option for us to let any type of prejudice or ethnocentrism political prejudice to creep into the church. You would just be shutting the door in people's faces. It's for everybody. Do you guys feel the sting of Jesus' words? Don't take away the key of knowledge from people. Christ's church has to be as radically inclusive as Acts. How awesome would that be if we got to experience the same thing? Don't you want that? I do. But also, woe to us if we are inclusive where Jesus is exclusive. If we in any way would dilute the power and the purity of the gospel of Jesus. With any other teaching or by blurring things, I hope you can see how that would just as much as the other ditch be blocking from people getting to the door. You would just be hiding it. If out of shame or anything, by shutting our mouth, we wouldn't use the key. Sometimes you'll... You'll preach the gospel and people won't like it, just like it was for Stephen and we'll find even with Peter throughout the rest of Acts and Paul. But it's still the key that has the power to save. Nothing else does. Now is the season for unlocking 
If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you need to know that he can free you. Only he has the power to save. And he loves you and he wants you. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you.